are in fact safe and effective. Weather in Washington, D.C. right now is 91 degrees and partly cloudy. In New York City, 84 degrees and partly cloudy. For WPFW in Washington and WBAI in New York, I'm Chris Banger-Drowns. Thanks for listening. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online. The time now is 5 p.m. Stay tuned for Driving Forces with Jeff Simmons coming up. Welcome to Driving Forces. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. Thank you for tuning in to WBAI today for the final episode before Labor Day weekend. I don't know about you, but I could really use a few days of just some peace and quiet. And actually, other than tuning into WBAI on Sunday morning to hear my colleague David Brand on City Watch uh, interviewing a Trump impersonator, and I'll talk about that later. I may just tune out of the news for a few days because as someone who constantly is consuming news, the more I read, the more anguished and troubled I get when I look at what's going on in this country. I mean, years from now, when you think back about 2020, what are you going to remember most? What are you going to reflect on most? It'll likely be some of the stories, some of the images, some of the comments that the president has made. I mean, I started this year cognizant of the virus that was overseas, but more focused on our local elections and, of course, the upcoming presidential election. But then as the pandemic struck our country and our city and our state and brought us into lockdown, we've experienced a year like none other in recent memory. I mean, and that's borne out by the number of people that we know who are now unemployed, who have shuttered their businesses. It's every day I walk outside now when I take a break and I walk down one of our commercial corridors here in Jackson Heights and I see the number of businesses that are still closed and may never reopen. You think about the number of people who have lost their homes or may be poised to do so right now because they've been without work. And even the parents who I've been talking to recently who are struggling with how this fall season is going to be when their kids have to go back to school and what it's going to look like. And then beyond that, the the significant number of people who have been sickened by COVID-19 or have lost their lives or the lives of loved ones and friends and coworkers and that death toll now across the country stands at 186, about 186,000 people. And, and, and sadly, this is something, of course, that I read this week that maybe I shouldn't have read, but it's good to know. Experts are predicting that there could be not only the resurgence this fall, but here it goes, that we can have a really difficult winter. And when I read that, I thought, why are we shifting from fall to winter? And it made a lot of sense because think about what we do in the winter. We're often clustered inside. We're in colder weather, so we stay inside indoors. So what is that going to look like? And think about the schools that now are considering doing outdoor uh, learning as part of, uh, of instruction this season and how that's going to look. I mean, as one senior emergency official with the WHO in Europe said, and I think you Game of Thrones fans are going to recognize this phrase, winter is coming. I mean, that was, I'm not a Game of Thrones fan, but even I knew what that was referring to. So sadly, and think about this, we're now just into the final third of 2020. And amidst the pandemic, we're also dealing with a, a constant flow uh, of incidents uh, that just illustrate the systemic racism that's in our society, particularly at the hands of law enforcement. I mean, I woke up this morning, and I'm sure many of you also saw the coverage about a man named Daniel Prude and what took place up in Rochester earlier this year, a few weeks prior, if I have it correct, a few weeks prior to what happened uh, with, with George Floyd. A, a video has surfaced that has led to protests already in this March 23rd incident uh, of an African-American naked man uh, who had been restrained by police officers. And there's a number of questions uh, involving that. So 
today, just to give you a little more news before we get to uh, I, get, I get to the first guest. Today, Joe Biden met uh, with Blake's family, and this was in an effort to bring about healing. But also, think about it, also, this is to counter President Trump's statements that Biden was somehow endorsing the chaos that has erupted uh, in Kenosha in, in, in the wake of his shooting. Biden said earlier this week, on Monday, days ago, that, and I'm quoting him here, rioting is not protesting, looting is not protesting. Trump visited two days ago uh, before Biden went out there, but he, when he was planning to visit, the governor of Wisconsin and a number of other local leaders also warned him not to come to the area, saying that his presence is only going to hinder the healing that's needed at this time. You know, and, and you know, and that one of those visions that I also have that stuck in my mind was just of you know Trump walking through a, a lot of that rubble afterwards, but also thinking about when people are saying, "Don't come here at this time." Uh, you know, don't come here at this time. You're not welcome, essentially, because you're just going to inflame tensions. Well, we have a president who doesn't really listen to that often. So uh, I want to also point to, uh, I'm going to bring up during the show, a uh, Quinnipiac poll. There's been a few Quinnipiac polls that have come out uh, so far this uh, this week. And in that poll, it looked in part at racism and what people perceive about our country at this time. And in that poll, this just came out yesterday, uh, three-quarters of likely voters agreed on one thing, that racism is a problem in the United States. Overall, 75%, three-quarters said it's a big problem, and a quarter, interestingly, said it is not a big, not a big problem. Um, and it was broken down by party as well. So what's interesting is that uh, Democrats said that and 97 to 2% that it's a big problem. Independents, if you're independent, this is interesting. 72% said it is a big problem, but uh, a quarter, 25% said it's not. And Republicans, um, think about it for a second, what you think that their responses were. They were split. About 51% said it's a big problem. 45% close to that said racism is not a problem in, in our country. So uh, I'm just going to double check one thing for Reggie in the studio is trying to get our first guest here, just making sure that that is the right number for our guest. Yes, that's the number that I have, Reggie. Uh, I appreciate you trying. And let me just, as we're doing this, I'm just going to do a quick little pitch while I look and double check a phone number right now. Um, the, uh, if you are, hold on, just double checking. Great. If you are a WBAI listener, I do want to thank you if you've been, uh, tuning in, uh, to WBAI, whether it's just for this show or if it is, uh, if you're a, a longtime listener or even a new listener, because, you know, we've encountered some bumps in the road over the years and including last year when we were in our fundraising drive. And unfortunately, uh, we were off the air for about a month, and that kind of set us back uh, when we were trying to, you know, raise a significant amount of money to be able to stay on the air. So I do bring this up in almost every one of my shows because I think it's important that you know that we've been around for, for 60 years, and we want to be around for another 60 years to be able to provide you with non-commercial, uh, non-corporate radio. And, uh, and to do that, we need your support. And so that's why it's also been incredibly important uh, that you show your support. And there are multiple ways you could easily do that. And one of the ways would be to call us, just to call us. And you can become a BAI buddy this way as well. You can call us and donate 516-620-3602. Again, that number is 516 516- 620-3602. I'm just trying to look for a number for my colleague here, and let's just see. And just double-checking, we have the right phone number, which looks like it is the right phone number. And, oh, and I believe we have the first guest. Good. So 
I'm really incredibly happy to have uh, uh, Randy Weingarten on today because, as you probably are aware, there have been a number of concerns raised about the reopening of schools. But it's not just here in New York City. It's across the country. And there are a number of, of legal challenges uh, that are out there across the country right now. If you've not heard of Randy Weingarten, I'd be surprised because uh, I've known her for, for, it seems like, decades now. She is the president of the American Federation of Teachers, and that union represents 1.7 million teachers, paras, school-related personnel, and, and other members across the country. And previously, and this is where I'd met her, I met her when she was the attorney for the United Federation of Teachers, and then she went on to serve 12 years as president of the United Federation of teachers here in New York City, and that union has been at the fore of challenging uh, Mayor de Blasio's plan to reopen the schools, which then led their threat of a potential strike, which then led to him delaying the reopening of schools. So it is a pleasure now to have Randy Weingarten here on WBAI. Welcome. Thank you, Jeff. I know we actually knew each other when we were both younger. <laughs> yeah, much younger. Pre-COVID, um, I wanna- you know? I, I do want to start off because I should acknowledge the fact that this week it was announced that you were just elect, re-elected to a seventh term as the AFT's president. Uh, in yeah. your statement about in your statement, you said this is a moment without precedent as the country faces a pandemic, an economic crisis, and a long overdue reckoning with racism. What does it mean to you to continue to lead the AFT at this time? Well, I think we are, look, we're, you know, we're in a moment of, um, that, that probably has no precedent other than World War II and the Civil War, in that you have three crises, immediate crises in the United States, all made worse by a fourth crisis, which is the crisis of democracy, um, all made worse by the current president, who, you know, just every single day does more and more and more to try to um, make this country into a kleptocracy, oligarchy, or autocracy, you know, whichever word you wish. Remember, I'm a uh, social studies teacher, so whichever word you wish to use. And, and, and look what he just did yesterday about New York. Now, New York and Washington were the initial epicenters of, um, of COVID. And both cities and states had to do a whole lot without any federal leadership to try to um, uh, tame this very, very destructive virus. And but because... Um, Trump cannot win on his record. He is trying to descend the country into chaos and trying to create um, an image of cities like D.C. and New York and um, Portland and Seattle, cities that have, um, that really believe, whatever you want to say about um, you know, a mayor de Blasio or, you know, beforehand Mayor Bloomberg, these are cities that where mayors have actually believed in peaceful protest and have, you know, I wouldn't say the same about Giuliani, but there are cities just like in Portland, just like in Seattle, just like in D.C. that have actually, um, yes, we have real issues sometimes in terms of violence and in terms of um, of, of um, policing issues, but they have a long history of using the public square for protest. And you see what Trump has done because every day that we're talking about something other than coronavirus, Trump believes is a good day for him, as opposed to a president who would be um, rolling up his or her sleeves to try to solve the worst health crisis that America has had in, you know, in a century. And, and that's part of the reason why it's been so difficult all across America to reopen schools or to actually 
um, think about what should happening in reopening schools because there's been no federal guidance, there's been no federal plan, and there's been no federal resources. And how the heck, I didn't curse, how the heck do you <laughs> deal with a national pandemic of national consequences where the pandemic doesn't know, oh, this is the border between Pennsylvania and New York, or or this is a Republican, or this is a Democrat. A virus doesn't know the difference between that. A virus attacks everyone, but everyone has not been attacked equally because you've seen the inequity. So it's so so leading in this moment of time means and and this is why I am very honored that you know that 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 I got the vote that I got you have to be trusted people have to feel like you have their back because no one really has no nobody has a magic wand nobody can say okay this is what's going to happen tomorrow and this is what we should do you have to use your best judgment based upon science based upon facts and based upon a compassion and an empathy towards people and towards making sure that people's lives and our well-being are protected. So I'm going to try to do the best I can under the circumstances. And talking about these times, and you you started to talk about you know the reopening of schools, I look at what's just happened here in the last few days in New York City. The mayor and the school's chancellor announced under a lot of pressure uh, that they were going to postpone the reopening of schools. This still has been met with mixed emotions. How do you think the city has handled the reopening plans, and, and where does it stand now? So I think the agreement that was um, announced Tuesday morning is very consequential and very important. And I give um, both the UFT and and the CSA a lot of credit for sticking to it. And look, I'm biased. You know, my relationship with the UFT, it is my home local. And, you know, um, I think that Michael has done an extraordinary um, I think that Michael has done an extraordinary job. Um, but what he was trying to do here is something that L.A. is now trying to do as well, which is how do you, how do you make sure when 40% of spread of COVID is asymptomatic, how do you make sure you, you monitor, you see what's going on before an outbreak becomes a surge. And and that is what he was fighting for, to make sure we have some routinized, random um, um, uh, COVID testing in schools of, of teachers and or of educators and of students so that you know on an ongoing way what's going on. So we never go back to what happened in 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 um in march so and then the second piece was you know this that this is a logistical challenge that 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 new york city schools have never faced before i mean the closest thing was remember the asbestos crisis or the you know so-called asbestos crisis where you couldn't actually wait till you did a hero reports on every single school before you reopen them so so you have to try to have on a on a local level the safeguards intact before you can have the reopening of in-person learning and 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 that should have been worked on from frankly April and May not just July and August and in fact our union and Michael and his staff was part of it we put out our plan for how you re- at the end of April, April 29th. So, you know, that we're the union. School systems should have been doing this at the same time, particularly big school systems, and they should have had those kind of safety protocols in place. They should have been working on the ventilation systems in June. They should have been working on making sure that there was soap and PPE in June. And so ultimately, when it's, so, so ultimately what happened instead 
was that the chancellor and the school, the chancellor and the mayor, you know, basically kicked it down to every single school. The, 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 the principals and teachers, we are not facilities managers. We, you need to have an infrastructure that is actually helping do this. And, and so what's going to happen is that there's going to be a rush over the course of the next few days to see if the school is ready. And I know the UFT. If a school is not ready, say it. So this is just kind of the second gate. The first gate was the Cuomo, the governor, saying that community spread is low enough that you can start thinking about in-person learning. The second gate is, and the school is or is not ready to be able to do a hybrid model. And I suspect there's going to be a bunch of schools that are not ready to do um, in-person. And so that's why you have to make sure that you, we stand up, you know, uh, distance learning as, as imperfect as that is, you know, as a default. So one thing that I found interesting, I've been trying to soak up a lot of the information this week, and I'm not sure where I had heard this. And, and you and I have talked about this eons ago, back when I, I was an education reporter. Class size is always you know, something that has been discussed in contract negotiations. But I've heard that there could be, for some teachers who are teaching remotely, as many as 66 or 68 students in a class for a period. Is that something that's also concerning? Because how can you give personal attention to students when there are so many. Yeah, but I think what's happening is that there is a fairly sophisticated process by which remote is going on. There's a team process of three of what I think is two or three teachers together. And so that there when you so so there you know so so there might be a lecture by which, you know, there may be um, what we call asymmetrical lectures where, you know, a teacher might actually do a lecture to that number of kids. But if you average the number of kids per teacher, the class size limitations are not being violated. Obviously, we think that there should be smaller class sizes, but we also believed and we also believed that you really need to have a team approach as opposed to having that a teacher in a school do both in school and do remote education. You, you know, you can't, you, you know, I've seen some districts that are basically doing, so, so my long answer is I don't think that that was the intent of this, and I don't think that's the way it's supposed to operate. Um, and so I would have to actually see the exact example that, that one is talking about. But... Um, they're, they're, the, the, the blended learning agreement is really a team approach, as opposed to, frankly, other districts that, that I think are, are wrong in the way they're doing it, where they're having a teacher teach um, in a hybrid model people in front of her, and that may be 10 or 12 people, but then there's a camera in the classroom, and so 30 you know, or, or, or 12 other um, people remote, or 12 other kids remotely, you, you cannot possibly uh, be focused on the kids in the classroom and the kids remotely and, you know, and have eyes on everybody at the same time. So I think that the, the model that the UFT negotiated, the teamwork model, is going to be a better model in terms of a hybrid situation than um, trying to do um, both remote and in person at the same time. So, and you mentioned other districts. The AFT has supported teachers' unions that have gone to court to challenge reopenings in, in some areas. Where do we stand now? Where are some of the uh, the legal challenges that you're backing right now? And in addition to that, is there an example of a district you can cite or where things seem to be running properly that you say this is the model we all should look at? You know, this is a national. There, there, there should be a national guidance, and there should be national, um, you know, guidelines. And for different things, different districts are doing a really good job. So, number one, LA understood that they were not. It was not capable, as there was a surge, to go back to in-school learning in the middle of it, of August when they were supposed to. 
and you know and so the 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 current superintendent who they had had a terrible fight with you know during the um you know during the strike and the new um, union leader got to an agreement very early about doing remote, and they got to a really great agreement about remote education. And, I think that is and uh, Randy, if you're still there, you were just breaking up, so you might not be in the best uh, cell reception spot right now. Are you still with us? Okay, we might have lost Randy Weingarten, so Reggie's going to try her again to see if we can get her on the phone. Okay, Reggie's just going to try her again. Um, so uh, as we're uh, getting her back on the phone, I just want to mention a report that came out yesterday uh, that touches on this topic. Uh, one of the places I used to go to as a reporter all the time was called the Independent Budget Office here in the city. They just put out a report yesterday, and it's highlighting a number of these things that Randy was just talking about uh, here on WBAI. Their report showed that 90% of public schools – have enough space for students to socially distance, provided gyms, cafeterias, and auditoriums can be used as alternative classrooms. So you start to think of those spaces being used as we get into colder weather as well, uh, and how you know, and then how that's going to kind of change the face of what type of instruction or or other activities can can happen in the schools. Uh, also, they found that over seventy percent of schools could accommodate their full enrollment under an alternative scheduling model while just using their regular classrooms. And if schools used their labs and other specialty rooms as regular classrooms, over 90% of them could accommodate all their students using one of the scheduling models. Uh, one other statistic, when auditoriums, gyms, cafeterias, and other spaces were included for potential classroom use, about 12% of the schools could accommodate their full enrollment on a daily basis, although using those non-traditional spaces for general instruction would likely be challenging, as they pointed out. Reggie, any progress by chance? Okay, so we probably lost Randy Weingarten. Obviously, she might have been moving around, so we just lost her. If we uh, get her back, uh, that would be great, but we were about to wrap up anyway. So, uh uh, Reggie, don't worry about that. I will reach out to her separately to apologize for the, the bad connection that took place. Um, going back to what I was just talking about, uh, there are a considerable amount of concerns about what is going on with our school system. Uh, the I was going to ask Randy if she felt that our union here in the city would call a strike. Would Is that still an inevitability? I mean, this this whole decision to postpone the start of school, pushing it back to the 21st for in-person instruction, um, you know, this would be the first time since 1975, and it is illegal to strike under the Taylor Law, so it would be interesting to see if that is going to happen. And again, this took place after weeks of nonstop pressure from parents, from advocates, educators, and others to slow down the reopening of, of buildings, but then it was brought to the negotiating table when the UFT threatened to strike, because that was at the risk of substantial legal and financial penalties, given that public sector employee strikes are not legal in New York. And the mayor's announcement took place on Tuesday about in-person learning being bumped to the 21st, which is 11 days after the mayor's original date. Uh, but uh, uh, there are a number of measures they're talking about right now, such as randomized testing of about 10 to 20 percent of each school's students, uh, student body and staff beginning on October 1st, and parents would have to give consent for their child to be tested for medical personnel. Uh, you know, these, there's an added layer of, of safety protocols that are going to complement what the city calls its school ventilation action teams initiatives uh, because they have to check, as Randy mentioned, about the ventilation in, in a number of the, these schools. So in a few moments, we're going to get to we're going to call our next guest for the second half of the show. And I'll be able to uh, bring Randy back another time. But I'm glad she was able to touch on some of the issues uh, that we've been raising. Um, but uh yeah, and we will get to uh, Nilly Rosick in about five minutes because I did want to use this time wisely and come back to what I was talking about before when we got Randy on, which was why it's important for you to support uh, WBAI. I gave you the phone number. 
Um, if you can make that contribution during the show and in the name of this show, that number is 516-620-3602. But I didn't get a chance to give you the website that you can go to, which makes it just very simple for you as well. So you can donate honestly any amount and remember we're all volunteers the majority of us are volunteers who are hosting the shows we are giving you know our blood sweat and tears to this station and we want to provide you with uh incisive interviews and a variety of interviews and a diversity of guests so if you can show your support go online to give to wbai.org that's give to the number two wbai.org so I didn't get to talk about this, but uh, and I think I've told you guys before, if you listen to me, that I tend to rip out a ton of, uh, of newspaper articles constantly to have ready for the show in case, you know, and, and eventually when we have Collins again, I'm going to love this. Um, but just to talk about some of the other things that's been in the news. And one of the biggest issues that have been going on has been this here in the city has been the rise in crime. Uh, and how this has become a campaign issue. I mean, think about what Donald Trump was saying about now, how he might pull uh, certain what federal funding uh, from New York City. And then our governor last night, had, uh, Governor Cuomo, had a really strong response with him, basically saying, like warning him he shouldn't really come to New York City uh, because he's not going to get a good reception. And I'm saying that a lot more diplomatically uh, than him. But you look at the numbers. And what's interesting, and this has been pointed out, Bob Hart, our guest on uh, on the show last week, brought this up uh, a day or two ago in talking about the crime levels. Uh Right now, and how they were much worse uh, during the period when Giuliani was mayor. But we have still seen a significant increase from 2019 to 2020. And, uh, you know, this week, the NYPD released figures that are incredibly disturbing because you are seeing these headlines every single day now in the paper. And yes, the media does push that. The media does see a good story. I was a journalist for 17, 18 years at newspapers, and I always knew the phrase, if it bleeds, it leads. I just read a book on that, and it talks about that. Um, the city has had 791 shootings since May of this year. That is roughly a 140% increase over the same period last year. Now, during this time, from May to August, there have been 180 murders in our city. That's almost a 50% increase compared with last year. And one other statistic, shootings in our city rose 166% and murder nearly 50% in New York City just in this last month in August. It's incredibly concerning that this is happening right now. And, you know, and it's sad that our president is using this as a kind of a campaign, in a way, a campaign threat, saying, I'm your law and order guy. I'm going to cut federal funding. You know, it's, it's just astounding at this time. So you've been listening to Driving Forces on WBAI 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. I am your host, Jeff Simmons, and just in the last half hour, I was talking to AFT President Randy Weingarten about school reopenings. Well, my next guest, who I invited on, I saw she had tweeted something about this, and that's why I wanted her to come on, is New York State Assemblywoman Nilly Rosick. She represents New York's 25th district, and that encompasses the eastern portion of Queens, including Flushing, Queensborough Hill, Hillcrest, Fresh Meadows, Oakland Gardens, Bayside, and Douglaston. She was first elected in 2012, and when she was elected, she became the youngest woman in the state legislature and the first woman ever to represent the 25th district, and she currently chairs the Assembly's Office on State-Federal Relations. She serves on a number of committees as well, and I want to point out one measure that she had authored, and then we're going to talk about another one during the interview, but she authored a new law uh, that would ease work schedules for state employees and expand current flexible workplace practices. And, and this other piece of legislation we'll talk about during her interview is about protecting victims of domestic violence. Nilly Rosick, welcome to WBAI. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Pleasure so to be it, here. And it was your tweet. Uh, you know, I, I tend to comb Twitter constantly, and I'd seen that you had tweeted something about schools reopening, and we'll get to that. But since it's your first time on my show, I just gave a little bit about your bio, but can you just tell me more and our listeners more a little about why you sought elective office and a little about your background? Sure. So 
As you mentioned, I represent parts of Eastern Queens in the State Assembly. Um, I ran for office in 2012 against the machine uh, before it was popular. <laughs> and um, really, it was because I was driven to public service at an early age. I was always taught to repair the world and help others. Um, and particularly in high school, I went to a Queens High School that taught students to leave their city greater than they found it. And that is sort of a, a motto and um, something that I've, I've kept in the back of my mind for a very long time. When the opportunity presented itself, um, I said I had to go for it. I'd worked in the assembly for many years up until that point um, and just felt really strongly about uh, the need to to represent the community that I grew up in. Um, and now seven years later, it's even more meaningful um, to keep representing that community um, and helping constituents through COVID and this crazy pandemic, um, but also on everyday issues that they come across. So you chair, I mentioned that you chair the off, um, the uh, State Federal Relations Committee. Can you talk a little about what this committee does and what its work has involved this year? I, I would imagine that uh, in fostering good relations between our state and the federal government might have its challenges. It certainly does, and it's more relevant now than ever before. Um, it was a committee that was created um, some years ago, but really dormant. And to be honest, the 2016 election breathed new life into it. I've chaired the Office of State and Federal Relations for around a year now. And a lot of the work that we do is not just communicating with our federal congressional delegation, but also getting my colleagues in the state legislature on board as well, um, sending letters, advocating for their communities in, in Washington, D.C., um, and making sure there's a clear line of communication between what happens in Albany and what happens in Washington, D.C., and how we can support each other, um, but also, you know, work to uplift our communities. Um, we've had hearings on the impact of COVID on small businesses and the impact that PPE, uh, PPP loans from um, the stimulus packages have had on our communities. We've written multiple letters to the congressional delegation asking for support and uh, kind of tweaks to uh, the stimulus packages that have come out um, based on the feedback that we got. We've written to the New York congressional delegation asking for federal funding on child care to help offset the added burden of child care. Um, and also we've led the state legislature's opposition to what is now canceled, but the policy that um, the Trump administration was pushing to support international students if their classes were remote. So we're keeping busy. It's certainly um, been a time where, you know, we need the federal government um, and their, their stimulus. A lot of our municipalities across the state are in desperate need, and um, we're going to keep advocating and telling New York stories in Washington, D.C., and I'm glad you mentioned that about childcare because you just had a really good column with uh, Justin Brannon, uh, another guest that we've had uh, here on WBI's Driving Forces, Councilman Brannon. Uh, you wrote about the nation's childcare crisis and how the pandemic exposed wide disparities between those who have more opportunity and those who don't. Can you can you talk a little about you know how we reimagine a new way forward? What would this look like? Yeah. So. You know, this is something that I've I've talked to Councilman Brennan about, um, and he has certainly been a leader on this for for quite some time. The bottom line is that even for families who can safely work from home, having access to safe and affordable childcare really makes the world of a difference. Um, we're all trying to balance the responsibilities that we have 
between work and life um, and adapt to the new way of living under a pandemic. So, you know, a lot of people say that the pandemic just exposed problems that we've already had. And quite frankly, childcare was a big uh, gap that, that we need to fill. Even during the seven different hearings that we had on small businesses um, and the impact of the PPP on our economy, childcare was always something that was mentioned. It was always foundational to all of the other issues. Because if we can't provide universal child care, then we can't fully get the economy back in shape. We can't get people back to their jobs. Um, and so, you know, part of the op-ed, we called for a convening of a team to establish some sort of program to provide quality care for daycare workers, um, to provide living wage for these administrators, um, and to say, like, we need to dream big. You know, we, the city came up with universal pre-K and 3K, and that's fantastic. We need to start thinking about universal child care for all across the state because it's a really big funding gap that we're missing. And there was another element to this that was interesting. I had not heard of it before until I read your piece, which was you mentioned uh, you proposed a universal basic income from parents. How would, for parents, excuse me. How would that work? So uh, UBI is, um, is an idea, a public policy idea that's been around for a while. Basically, what we propose is that for the duration of the pandemic or until, you know, we can say we have universal child care, we should be providing every parent with a stimulus check, whether that's from the federal government or from the state, so that they can afford child care centers, babysitters, tutors, or even to take time off of work. Ultimately, I believe that it would stimulate the economy and create stability um, because that's what we really need right now. We need people to feel like they can balance it all, that they can get back to work, um, and that they won't be punished for you know, having to pick between their child at home or going back to work. And the UBI would be very supportive of that. Um, the other proposal that I've seen out there um, and one that I'm proposing in the state legislature is that the state should really step up and provide an additional um, stimulus check for those unemployed. Back in July, I think it was end of July, federal government stopped providing an additional $600 for everyone. Other states have now stepped up and said that they would fill in that gap. I feel very strongly that New York should be doing that as well. Again, it goes directly into um, it goes directly to families who are in need um, and who are really having a hard time during this pandemic because they are being asked to choose between child care and their actual job. So earlier in the show, I talked with Randy Weingarten from the AFT, and she expressed her concerns about reopening of schools. I mean, a number of teachers, parents, students are worried about what this is going to look like and about health and safety. How would you characterize how the city has handled the reopening? What do you want to see? I think what we all need to see is a lot more guidance. Um, you know, earlier this morning, I even went around to a couple of my elementary and middle schools who are still in need of PPE. Um, and I am by no means an expert on the issue and do not claim to be one, um, but we really need to figure out and have more guidance from the city on a safe reopening. We need to really listen to teachers and administrators who are on the front lines and know what it's like um, trying to teach either remotely blended or in the classroom. Um, we really need to keep their health and safety in mind as well. Um, I think it would ease a lot of the stress that parents and families have been feeling because a lot of the guidance that we've seen is pretty last minute. Um, you know, and only recently did the city announce, um, you know, a delayed start to the year. But if you were looking at a start for next week, 
I know that a lot of families felt a lot of pressure, um, and so additional guidance and support is really necessary. So the teachers union had threatened to uh, go on strike. Uh, that actually seemed to lead towards this uh, stalemate for now and a postponement. If they decide ultimately to go on strike, would that be something you would support? Absolutely. I mean, they are on the front lines and they know what's best for their own members, but also, you know, they're keeping in mind the greater health and safety of everyone, of the general public. Um, If there's anything that we've learned from reopening um, on the higher education level is that, you know, plenty of universities and colleges have started reopening and many of them have seen uh, rapid increase in their COVID-19 cases. So we need to be very cautious when approaching reopening so that we don't see that happen in New York City. Governor Cuomo has received quite a bit of praise over the last six months for his handling of the pandemic. Is that your assessment? Do you feel that he's done a good job, especially when you look at uh, a lot of the criticism we've had here in New York City about how the mayor's handled uh, the response? Yeah, there. There's plenty to look back on and wonder what we could have done differently with the information we now have about COVID-19. I think the important thing is to continue our efforts to keep our numbers low by wearing masks and maintaining social distancing whenever possible. So many of us are concerned about a second wave. Um, I know that I am. And I am as well. Yeah, especially as we near flu season and all the, you know, the reopenings we just talked about and people returning to work. So using what we've learned over the last couple of months, I think will help us act quickly to ensure everyone's safety moving forward. So um, I mentioned in introducing you that I talked about one of the measures, the uh, legislative measures that you saw inked, but I held off on details on the second one because I really think it's important for you to uh, talk to, tell our listeners a little about another measure that became law over the summer that people might have missed protecting survivors of domestic violence. Can you talk a little about that legislation, what motivated you to pursue this and what it will do? Sure. And, and um, you know, I really commend you for, for um, highlighting smaller issues that might not get the light of day. Um, sometimes new legislative ideas are as basic as learning as something seems so straightforward, but is not actually codified into law. That's how this uh, new bill got started for me. When I heard in passing that orders of protection for domestic violence survivors not include smart devices, you know, your Alexa, your your ring doorbell, um, all of the apps that control the temperature in people's homes. Um, when I realized that orders of protection um, don't include those smart devices because the law was written before that technology existed, it seemed like an obvious fix that we needed to make. I've worked on domestic violence legislation for many years now um, and really believe that we need to keep updating our statute to fit modern technology and and modern situations. Um, Most studies estimate that the number of homes with some sort of smart technology grows by 31% every year. So these devices are super prevalent. Um, I'm sure... You know, I use it. I'm sure you use it. I'm sure many of your listeners um, in some shape or form use smart technology. So what this bill does, this new law, um, it allows judges to issue protective orders that bar abusive partners from using these webcams, home security systems, anything that's Internet connected to either spy on their victims or harass them. Can you imagine the summer being trapped in an apartment in 100-degree weather and, you know, your former spouse or abuser um, was constantly turning on and off the air or turning on and off the lights. Um, That is just something that we cannot tolerate. So I'm really proud of that bill that I sponsored with Senator Bailey. I'm continuing to focus on a lot of those same issues. Um, 
expanding domestic violence protection. Um, and there are so many other issues um, that deal with technology, including online motorization, strengthening our election laws. I mean, these are all issues that we need to keep in mind um, going into next year. And we've got just about two minutes left. I want to get to an event that you are hosting because, you know, as people resume that, you know, their uh, regular or close to regular schedules right now, they'll be taking, I would assume that more people are going to be taking mass transit. You are hosting an event with a MetroCard mobile van uh, coming up. Can you talk a little about that? Yes, the MTA is doing this all across Queens, but I'm hosting one in Fresh Meadows at the Fresh Meadows Shopping Center, September 14th and September 28th from 1 to 2.30 p.m. Um, essentially, I you know, live in a district and represent a district that doesn't include subways or train stations. Believe it or not, that exists in New York City. So we are wholly dependent on our buses. And um, one of the things that people can do at the mobile van um, is, is um, buy MTA Metro cards so that they can get in and out of the city, in and around the town. Um, it's something that's really critical as we think about reopening and now that the MTA is starting to charge folks for getting on the bus again. So, Assemblymember Nilly Rosick, where can people go lear to learn more about you and your work? Um, I'm on Twitter at Neely, or um, I'm, you know, if you just Google Neely Rosick, I'm sure my assembly website will pop up. I'm also on Facebook. Um, we try to post regularly and also send out an email blast every other week to keep uh, constituents and the public at large informed about what's going on in their city and state. Assemblymember, thank you so much for joining me here today on WBAI. Thanks, Jeff. So we've got just a few minutes left, and I want to try to give you, for our listeners, some good news. You know, so much we're talking about, about troubles in the world. Actually, before I get to the good news, I should give you some breaking news uh, that just popped up from an NBC alert. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning of the show what had taken place with Daniel Prude in Rochester, uh, that has caused a lot of concern. Well, apparently the mayor uh, upstate in Rochester has now, it's now been announced that the se seven officers have been suspended in the death of Daniel Prude. The mayor, uh, Lovely Warren, said at a news conference that uh, he made this decision against the advice of counsel, uh, but his quote was, I have never shied away from taking action and holding our police or anyone who fails in their duties to our community accountable. I understand that the union may sue me for taking these officers off the streets. They should feel free to do so. So that's just breaking this afternoon. Let me go to just a bit of good news for you, especially for our listeners who might be favoring a Democratic candidate for president right now. In the Quinnipiac, one of the Quinnipiac polls that came out this week, and there were two. One uh, that came out this afternoon looked at Florida and Pennsylvania, two states that Trump had narrowly won in 2016, which really seems like a lifetime ago. In Florida, 48% of likely voters support Biden and 45% support Trump. And in Pennsylvania, Biden is leading Trump 52 to 44%. In the other poll, one fact I want to mention to you, President Trump received a negative job approval rating with 43% of likely voters approving of the job that he's doing and 54% disapproving of the job that President Trump is doing. And finally, one other statistic that is a, a bit concerning, likely voters say 58 to 38% that the country is worse off than it was in 2016, the year of that last surprising presidential election. And of course, if you look at, if you break down those numbers, you see that largely Republicans, 84% are saying that the country is better off, but flip that around, Democrats, 95% say that the country is worse off. And uh, independents, 60% 
say that the country is worse off. So as I get ready to wrap up the show, I want to again thank my first guest, uh, AFT President Randy Weingarten. Her folks emailed me, but I couldn't uh, email back because I'm talking with you, um, that her phone had died during this. So that explained what happened to us at that moment. And also New York State Assembly member Neely Rosick, who just joined me during the second half hour. Tune to WBAI City Watch this Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. My co-host David Brandt has lined up a great lineup for Sunday. He's going to talk to New York State Senator John Liu, who chairs the Senate's Committee on New York City Schools, obviously continuing to discuss the reopenings and what's going to take place. But then he gets into a topic that we focused on last September that I was very happy to do. And I'm so glad that David is doing this. He's talking about climate crisis. He's going to be talking with activist Patrick Houston from an organization called New York Communities for Change. And then, and this is why you have to tune in. I tease this at the top of this show. He's lined up a former Brooklyn prosecutor who is also a Trump parodist. His name is Tootsie Warhol, spelled like Andy Warhol. Tootsie Warhol is going to be on the on the show. He is a Donald Trump parodist. If you Google that, you'll see uh, some of the images of how he dresses up. Just can't show you that on the radio. Again, I want to thank you for tuning in to Driving Forces today. If you missed any part of the show, it'll be up on our website in just a little while at WBAI.org. Again, I want to thank Reggie Johnson for making it all happen today. Have a great evening and stay tuned for the news with Paul DiRienzo. new release, Living in a Ghost Town, WBAI Broadcasting in the Midst of This Pandemic, is like operating in a ghost town. But we want to take a moment and thank you. Thank those of you who have become WBAI buddies in this COVID-19 outbreak. Thank you to Emily from Brooklyn, Paul also from Brooklyn, and Sandra from Inwood, who became WBAI buddies in the name of all WBAI shows. And so did Maurizio from Yorktown Heights and Lauren from Sayville. Thanks to Alan from New Jersey, who became a buddy in the name of Lopate at Large. Allison from Amaranek is a buddy in the name of Green Street. And John is now a WBAI buddy in the name of Guns and Butter. Thank you for listening to WBAI, for becoming WBAI buddies. And please, if you would like to become a buddy, it's really easy. Just go to give to WBAI.org, become a sustaining member, help keep WBAI afloat during this pandemic. If you listen to programs here on WBAI, then please consider supporting WBAI. Become a monthly sustaining member for 10 or more dollars a month, whatever you can afford. Thank you so much, WBAI. Can't do it without you because we're listener-sponsored. We're non-corporate, non-commercial, and we depend on listeners like you. Going to the phone, taking the initiative, going to the phone, calling 516-620-3602, 516-620-3602. Say you want to become a WBAI buddy, a sustaining member, in the name of your favorite show, or in the name of all WBAI programs. It may seem like a ghost town, but in reality, WBAI is broadcasting your listening, and we're a community radio station coming together at 99.5 FM, streaming at WBAI.org. Once every 10 years, America mounts a census and attempts to count every single person living in the country Citizens and non-citizens, immigrants, documented and undocumented alike. This is an extremely difficult goal, even under ideal circumstances. And even as the actions of the current U.S. government has created fear and uncertainty that all but ensures that many immigrants will stay in the shadows, too terrified to risk contact with any governmental official, census takers included. However, by law, namely Title 13 of the U.S. Code, the Census Bureau cannot release any information about you, your business, 
or your immigration status to law enforcement. So step out of the shadows, stand up and be counted. This is a public service of WBAI Community Outreach. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online. The previous program was Driving Forces with Jeff Simmons, and that's heard Thursdays at 5 p.m. Stay tuned for the WBAI Evening News coming up, followed by Driving.